Are we away? Yes, so we're away. (laughs) We're away with the fairies. Welcome to Talking Books. I'm Simon Mattox, and I read out loud for a living. Yes, I'm an audiobook narrator, and in this series of podcasts, I get together with an author whose book or books I've recorded, and we talk about writing, recording, and all things Talking Books. Um, so, welcome, Louise Voss. Thank you very much. Lovely so, to be here. So, Louise and I have known each other for a long time. Must be over 20 years. Is it really? As I think so, yeah. Wow. It's when I first moved round here and the kids were little. Okay. God. In fact, Alfie was a baby, wasn't he? When... Yes, I guess so. Yeah. yeah, and he's 21 now. Yeah. Yeah, my youngest. And in fact, it was you. It was you, Louise Voss, who got me into doing... Talking books. Yes. Thank you. I it, I'm delighted the it worked in the post, out. By the way. <laughs> oh really? <Yeah. laughs> it's a bit overdue. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think it got lost. No, uh, no. I'm really pleased because I just I think it came about when a book we had had been narrated in a way that I wasn't. Yes, I think we can be honest about this. Can we? Absolutely. Can we? Yeah, well, absolutely. So, because, um, you know, hey, I, I benefited from it. So I think <laughs> I think dis another narrator in favour of me. Yeah, so it was it was a first book in your D.I. Lennon series. Can't, we can't really talk about it because it's still available on audio. I know, but that's all right. No one cares. <laughs> What's the podcast? I mean, there, it was, only three people will ever listen to well, this. Well, that's series. true. <laughs> Sod's law, it'll be huge. And <laughs> this poor guy. I mean, he was. it was fine. But there were just certain things about it that just weren't right. Yeah, it you know. wasn't that he was bad. No, no, not at all. It? It, and actually, I have had people saying, oh, I really love the audiobook of that one. So, so what was it called? It was um, From the Cradle. Okay. And that was the first D.I. Lennon one. Um, but it was just, there were just some um, voices that weren't right. And I thought it was such a shame that we couldn't have kind of had a discussion about it like or somebody who was very faintly wiltshire ended up sounding like one of the wurzels you know it was that kind of like, oh, yeah i've think... come to arrest you i know and it was just like no 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 he just he just spent some years in his childhood in in western supermare or somewhere you know okay. he's not like full-on yokel yes um well this kind of feeds into one of the, one of the sort of things that's become a bit of a theme with these podcasts which is the sort of barrier between narrators and mm. authors created really it seems to me by publishers yes who are sort of saying no 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 you can't get in touch oh yeah i think that's changed now i mean this was this was uh 2015 uh when i recorded and that. audible wasn't uh, nearly as big as it is now was it no i think it might um, have just been kind of starting out over here right but susie was saying that she gets sent a, a form and they sort of say what you know what would you hmm. like to do if, if the if the narrator comes across an issue would you like them to contact you directly oh, really? would you like to, them to oh i've never had that form oh, okay. that's good yeah, no, I still, I mean, actually, most of my books, I think all my books are on audio now, but I don't think I've ever listened to any of them, apart from the ones that you did. I tend to sort of listen to a bit and then kind of cringe and, and not listen to the rest. I should at some point. It'd be quite interesting. So you did listen to mine a little bit. Oh, I bit. did. No, I listened to all of yours. And did I you? think they're absolutely brilliant. Genuinely, you are by far the best narrator. Okay, <laughs> and I'm not okay, just okay, saying the check that because I'm on post. your, uh, here is your the, podcast. Okay, here, actually, here's some cash. <laughs> so here we go. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much. No, no, I, I just... Because I knew that you'd do a good job, and you did, and it wasn't just that you did a good job, because you're amazing at voices, And uh, but it was that you could say, how do you want me to, to go about this? You know, what, what should the tone be here? And actually, I seem to remember you caught quite a few typos that everybody else had missed, like the... That is very common. The, the, I'm, I'm becoming the king of the typo. Oh. Well, I think it's... 
I think it's just part of the process, to be honest. I yeah. mean, I, I would, I will find one or two in every single book. I've yes, because you have to look at it so closely, whereas most people well, just I'm kind reading of skim it aloud. exactly. So you come across so something ideal. and you go, "Oh, that's not right." And that is advice that that um, I do give to new authors um, when they're writing their first book: is read it out loud to yourself when you finished it, because a that tells you if a bit of dialogue's working or not, and b it makes it much easier to pick up any mistakes. Mm. Because you're consuming it in a different way, aren't you, when you're yes. reading it out loud? And there was the name issue, the laugh language. <laughs> I was going to mention that. Which We're going that? back to the, the the first narrator. The first narrator, sorry. Yeah, I know. I did. I used my ex-partner's surname, Lockland, and it came out as Laughland in the which uh, you know was. Which, to be fair to him, it is spelt. It is spelt. Yes, it's Laughland. phonetical, but. But you're thinking. Is phonetical is that the right word, or is it phonetic? Phonetic. Yeah. I don't See, know. It's very early. It is early. It's, early. it's very early on a Sunday morning, yeah. so we're both slightly yeah. jaded, shall we say. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I'm a victim of my own whatever. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm doing a book at the moment which is set in Berlin during the Second World War about a, a German detective, and there's a, a name in it, and I thought, oh, that's Dr. Piper. It must be Piper. And I thought, no, I better check. And, it was, and it's Piper. Oh. It's pronounced Peeper. Wow. Oh, because uh, it's German. Because it's German. Oh. And I, I'd already, you know. Oh, you'd already done I've it. I've already done quite a bit, so I've had to go back yesterday. And, and can and you can you edit out the individual word, or do you have to do like a section of it? I have to do the sentence, it, really. The sentence. And, it, and you, yeah, it's not great. The, the wonderful thing about a PDF is that you can search for that name. Right. So you can find it every time it's mentioned within the book. And, and then how do you find it on the recording? Is it easy to... Oh, you then have to, yeah, kind of try cool. and work it out. Right. And have to listen. It's time consuming. Yeah. And it's but it, and it's my own fault. But it's so much better that you did that. How annoyed would the author be if, if it's Piper yes. all the way through and Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. Yes. I've changed all in fact I went through the afterward and then changed them all to Laughland. <laughs> so Doctor Laughland, what is going on here? Yeah, I just thought it'd be better really. Anyway, so um I'm determined to get this to finish the story. Uh so you then very kindly went to Brilliance Audio and said, I want my mate Simon to do it. Yeah, the next one. Yes. Yes. And so I got this I got this email from a guy going, what is your PFH rate? <laughs> and, I, and I was genuinely like, what? <laughs> I'd never come across this before. Well, what is it? A PFH is your per finished hour oh, rate. right. And audiobook narrators... <laughs> Sounds like how alkaline you are, I know, it? <laughs> I know. I don't know, I'll go away and do a test. I'll, I'll pee onto a stick and I'll let you know. Um... So, yes, and the, the per-finished hour rate is what they pay you for a finished hour of audio. So that's oh. not how long it takes you to do it. That's oh. for the finished hour of edited audio. Which is what, presumably, three times what it actually takes? Or? It's about twice. About twice. And, yeah, so, I, I mean, I'm sure you know this, but, but most, well, I say most, I would say the majority of audiobooks are narrated by people from their home studios. So they're editing themselves. So there's oh. no producer. Right. Because it saves money. Yeah. You know. Uh, in fact, the only other audiobook I did, I looked this up, was The Magic Cottage by James Herbert. In fact, funnily enough, also from Isis Audiobooks, who I work for now. And I mean, at the time, I had no idea. That came out, I found it, I found it on Amazon India in uh, cassette. And it came out as, <laughs> on the 1st of May, 1993. Oh, wow. And that was, so that was a long, long time ago. Yeah. And that's the only time I'd ever done a book. And I was never asked to do another one. <laughs> Um, so did you make something up or did you come clean and say, well, I don't really have one yet? Or what's the average? Or Yes, I said, I have no idea. I said, oh. I don't know. And I, I probably said, you know, something more commensurate with um, 
commercials which is what i was always mm-hmm. doing you know and then they kind of went we're not begging that so, <laughs> yeah so it's well at uh, least they didn't sort of dismiss you completely no, no no but then i did your book um which you know which i loved and then i wrote to them and said you know i really enjoyed that yeah got any, any more got any more exactly and then didn't hear from them i didn't hear from oh, them really? for a year and then and then they just started using me Amazing. a lot which was great yeah so yeah bless you thank you oh and it's great. And, and what, what I love about it is that I've kind of, you know, I've got a, a sort of body of work. Yeah. Because I used to do commercials. Yeah. That was all I did, you know, did it. And the old cartoon here and there and, and stuff and, you know, lots of corporate stuff. But basically, nothing that you could kind of go, yeah, that's yeah. that. And uh, you, you've got a share, you get a share of the royalties, don't you, sometimes? Um, I mean, no, Louise. Well, you should do because... <laughs> no, not at all. Oh, not the royalties, but the um, no. PLR... What's the PLR? Um, it's Is that like, like the PFH. Um, it's um, or the public lending rights. So you okay. should get, and every time somebody takes a book out of the library or an audio book out of the library, you get fifty percent of the of the loan. Did you not know that? And wow. it's like pennies. I mean, you know, it's not huge hey, amounts, but you've done loads. So every you, little helps. It will. I, I seriously do it. I'll, I'll, oh, I'd never, I'd never come across that before. Oh wow! I could be talking absolute bollocks. So you, you know, just, <laughs> just, just sort of make sure before you put this in and no, have every audio book narrator to, I'm going. Going down to my Woo! local library. I'm going. Oi, where's my money? You've got my money here. Where is it? I want it. Oh. No, it's. I mean, comparatively, you know, compared to something like a commercial, it's pretty poorly paid. Yeah. Uh, well, so is being an author. Well, yes, which leads us nicely <laughs> onto. Your, uh, shall we say, your love-hate relationship with... Yes. I, I with Well, love-hate's a bit strong, but I think it's just like a... Maybe it's just like a really long marriage that's had its high points, <laughs> but it's kind of over. And you just... I think I feel liberated saying that now. But then 10 years ago, I'd, I'd given up. After my first four books with Transworld, I, had, I got off to this fantastic start, you know, huge six-figure deal, fanfare, blah, blah, blah books didn't do as well as as they were supposed to dropped by the publisher and then i didn't have another one published until mark and i self-published and then we got picked up by harper collins but that was probably six years later so i did have a big gap then mm-hmm. and at that point i said oh that's it i'm done four books oh i'm never writing another one but i did then go and do an ma in creative writing because i i found i missed writing and perhaps i will this time i'm not sure so okay so in your mind now so i don't know this so in, um, in your mind you've you said that's it no more well i have however if i got a really good offer or had a really amazing idea but i think i would need some financial incentive this time because basically my last five books have sold almost nothing and i've made so little money out of them considering it was supposed to be my my main occupation it's ridiculous and you can't it's not sustainable to make a couple of grand a year from from your main job it's just ridiculous so uh i've i'm not going to keep churning out books on the hope i mean i might as well buy a lottery ticket seriously it it you know i've got as much chance um because once you've written the book however good it is or not it doesn't make any difference it's out of your hands it's down to the publisher and if they you know haven't got a huge budget and if your book is one of dozens and dozens and dozens that are coming out that month you know you've get you get one shot at the marketing and if it doesn't take off at that point they're on to the next one and and you know that's it oh sorry it didn't work out okay well that's a year of my life i'll never get back and it and and right. i think if i was starting out 
you know, I love writing and the excitement of writing a book and then the pride of having a book published and finished and people reading it and enjoying it. You know, that's all great. But actually, there comes a time I just want to make enough money to have a comfortable living mm. and this is not doing it. You know, and, and when it's working and you're in a role and you're, you've got a big publisher behind you or you, you know how to market books and that becomes a, a full-time job in its own right or you have enough money to pay someone to market them for you but you have to go big otherwise it's not going to make an, uh, an impact because there's 8 million books on Amazon now I, I gather Wow 8 million and you know how do you even start to make a dent in that unless you're, you're already a name or you've got a lot of help behind you or you, you, you're really good at marketing Yes I mean how how does that work? I mean, I went to because I belong to a, a, a men's book club where we we read books, and um, we went along to the BBC uh, last month to because they have a book club with James Naughty. Is that the second time James you've done Naughty. that? Isn't it? Sorry, didn't you do that? Yes, a few we've done years it two ago. or three times because they're desperate for people to go along. You oh, just well. you just apply to them and they and you know. Oh, cool. Then it doesn't cost. Has, it, has it been broadcast yet? Yes, um, but it was. Um, it's called Dear Mrs. Bird. Oh, I know. A.J. Norton. Well done. Yes, I, I really like that book. Yes. Did, what did you all think of it? Yes, we, I mean, it's enjoyable, but yeah. it wasn't. But it's become huge, I and know. suddenly she's on the BBC Book Club. Sorry, this just sounds very mean of me. Well, no, 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 but this but is it wasn't interesting like because an it's earth shattering. Yes, I know. That's the thing. It's like it was lovely, and I did really enjoy it, and it did stay with me more than. Because uh, I read lots of books, and some of them you you finish and you just instantly forget them and mm. move on. And I think a lot of mine are like that. And But some, you know, no, I would disagree. Oh, thank you. It's a bit, a bit of a mystery how one will just sort of take hold, but that's what the publishers are absolutely praying for, that that will happen. And that's mm. the only way, really, that they can make a huge impact without spending hundreds of thousands of pounds up front, which they will now only do for celebrities or really huge authors. Right. You know, when I started 20 years ago, they were still giving unknown people like me sort of six-figure sums, but I don't think that happens very often now. If I it, would if, doubt it, no. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know And my current publisher it, doesn't even, doesn't pay any advance. It's all royalty-based. And you think, oh, great, 40, 40% royalty or 45% royalty. Oh, fantastic. However, <laughs> if you don't sell the books, then you you know forty yes. percent of nothing is nothing <laughs> is still nothing. Yes, yes. So it's all very well in theory, and some people do brilliantly out of it, but they tend to be the people that kind of were there at the beginning and have built up a a real um, following. And um, some people do incredibly well that way, but I know lots and lots of authors who who like me who just aren't making any money. Mm. Um, yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. Well, I mean, when I was knew I was going to see you, I looked back over um, the Blissfully Dead, which was the one that I did, which was yeah. the second one in your series um, of the the D.L. Lennon books, um, and it got some great reviews for the book. You know, yeah, um, I'm very fond of those two books. I think they they it was just such a shame that we didn't get to write any more after that. That was the last. You know, it was supposed to be the second one in a series that would have yes. kind of gone on and on yes. for for quite a long time. For a couple of years, people were emailing saying, "When's the next one coming out?" and Oh, there isn't going to be one because shame. the series thing seems to me to be important it's very important and if you and a lot of the authors I know who are doing really well are doing really well with series because people become invested in the characters and they want to know and that's the ideal really because then you're not disappointing your publisher you're not disappointing your readers there's a continuity for you and, and, and so yes ideally uh, but not everybody can write a series 
you know it's like plot twists if 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 you don't i'm a, i'm a big fan of working them out as you go along because if you don't know what the twist is then the reader's not going to guess they can't Are you? guess okay so that that was a question i was going to ask so right. do you when you sit down you don't plot it all out no i i i've done it once for a book that I end for a, a, another project that I ended up not doing a, a ghostwriting project, and I was really surprised that I could do it. But I've never done it for one of my own books, not completely. I, I kind of will have a rough idea of what the ending might be. Okay. But there's a really good analogy. I can't remember who came up with it originally, but it's headlights on a dark country road analogy that you know where you're starting from you know where you're going but as you're going along you can't see any further than the the light of the headlights on mm. the road so mm. so you just sort of just keep driving basically mm. I mean, i've expl- expressed that what, really what car are you in at the time <laughs> citroen 2 cv okay good okay and the cat's eyes they <laughs> somehow they're important or not or, yeah. yeah you can't figure out a twist until you know everything that surrounds it really because mm. you don't know whether it would work or not you might have a an idea of of who the murderer is or if you're writing crime or what you want to happen at the end but it's the subtleties that are harder to pre-plan i mm. think Mm. I mean, some people can do it, but I think you've got to have a certain type of brain. I think was it Robert Harris that always writes out every single scene on index cards on a board on his wall? But I couldn't do that. It just definitely. I mean, I'm sure that you, this has come up in in your podcast before. But plotters versus pantsers. Have you heard that expression? No. A pantser is someone who goes by the seat of their pants and right. just works out as they go along. Okay. And I think most of us are some combination of the two. Um, but there are, you do get some people that never plan anything and some people that plan everything. But I, I think, it, yeah, I'm, a, I'm definitely a mixture. Okay. Um, because one of the things that's, that has come up as well is that people said to me, do I read the books first before I narrate them? Mm. Because, in fact, there must surely be an argument that I, as the narrator, don't know who the killer is. But yeah, no, I, that, don't, I can't no, I have to read you them. Have, I mean, you'd have, have to. to. You have to know. And also, you know, you're you're an actor, so you can presumably hide. You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't have a sort of <laughs> yeah. certain inflection in your voice when no. it's the killer. Going, <laughs> oh no, I was I was I was <laughs> always giving a strong London accent, and make yeah. it talk like that because <laughs> yeah. they're a killer, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, no, exactly. Um, yeah, you don't do that. So tell me about your last novel. Uh, it's your called, most recent novel. My I most say. recent novel is called Kerry Tucker Learns to Live, which is not the title I gave it. The publisher... Yes, this seems to happen all the time. More and more, yes, more and more. I I don't remember ever any debate about publishers retitling books up until about the last four years. Right, and why do they... They they want to try and find the title that'll be the most commercial for that market. But I must say, I was really surprised when they said Kerry Tucker Learns to Live, because I I do find it's a little winsome... But mm-hmm. at least it's memorable. Whereas the one before was called His Other Woman. And I absolutely hated that because I just thought it couldn't be more bland. Yes. And I really hate these titles, you know, The Sister, The Mother, His Mother's Girlfriend, His, you know, it just, they're so <laughs> his forgettable. His Mother's Girlfriend's Waste Paper Basket. Well, I, know, I mean, mm. and also on a Kindle, you don't even have the book cover to remind None. you of the title. None. So you 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 pick it up and you read it and you're thinking, oh, I don't, what book, what book is this? Who's it by? And presumably. And, most people these days read either on a Kindle or on, on a Kindle app on the iPad. I think so. I don't know what the percentages are, but I would imagine mm. it's more 
digital these days. Mm. I know there's obviously still lots of people that love paperbacks. Well, any book that's on Amazon, you can pretty much order it print on demand. So it's usually available, but they're so expensive. And the price between paperbacks and Kindle books is there's such a difference. Like, why wouldn't you mm. read on a Kindle for mm. two quid? But that's another thing that has sort of happened over the last few years. People are just so unwilling to spend more than a couple of quid on a on a book. Um, whereas, you know, you'll happily spend four fifty on a birthday card for somebody. Mm. But oh, four fifty for an ebook. Oh, that's a bit steep. You know, they yeah. won't do it. No, no. So you have to sell so many to be able to make any proper money. So the memorable title of your last novel, which I've just... You've already forgotten. Which I've just Kerry forgotten. Tucker Learns to Kerry Live. Kerry Tucker Learns to Live. I think live. it's in that um, uplit kind of um, Eleanor Oliphant is completely yes. fine or perfectly fine or whatever it was. Yeah. I did what I do with all my books is I think they're absolutely crap when I'm writing them and this is the worst book that anyone's ever written and then I finish it and it all gets edited and I look at it again and think, oh, actually, that's pretty good really it's fine it's enjoyable and i've had nice feedback from from it from lots of people in a way that i kind of didn't necessarily think i i would but i never do it's about a post woman uh, and it's set during lockdown but it's not about the pandemic mm -hmm. it's just a sort of that's the backdrop of it and she she's on a rural postal route in a wiltshire village and her life is just a complete mess and she's very overshadowed by her high achieving younger sister and then her mother dies and their father had died um, about 25 years before and when their mother dies her mother had always led Kerry to believe that she could um, move into the, the big house because Kerry lives in a, a garage annex of the childhood home and she has always done and she's 43 and she's never had a partner and it transpires that um, it's because of certain events that happened to her when she was a teenager that traumatised her for life okay. and there's flashbacks to those and it all kind of ties in with she meets somebody in the, in the present who she doesn't realise was something to do with that. And there's a sort of subplot. After her father dies, 25 years earlier, and she's clearing out his stuff, she finds um, a contact sheet of naked photographs of her history teacher at school. And um, her father is a keen Male photographer. Female. Uh, female. Female history teacher. And a very sort of glamorous young history teacher who was sort of a family friend as well okay. so she fears the worst and it kind of really but she thought she always thought that her parents had this blissfully happy marriage mm. and um it turns out she finds these pictures and thinks well they obviously didn't she just feels really cynical about any relationships if she couldn't even trust the fact that mm. her mm. parents marriage was a sham possibly so um the, there's a subplot that she actually, when things start going massively wrong after her mother dies and she gets an alcohol problem and, you know, all this stuff happens, she decides to try and track down this history teacher to actually ask her. Um, and that's a true story. I found the naked photos in Dad's drawer after he died. Wow. I know. I found this contact sheet and um, Dad was a very keen photographer. And I had this dilemma, like, what do I do? If I, if mum knew about it and I destroy them, she'll know that I've seen them. If I leave them there, at some point mum will clear out that drawer and then she'll find them. And what if she doesn't know okay, about so, them? Okay, so this is while your mum was still alive. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, yeah, because I had the same sort of thing, like my dad died when I was 18 and mum only died a few years ago. Hmm. So, But I found the photographs probably a year after dad died. He had this big drawer full of... 
But you would stuff. imagine that if he was going to really hide them from your mum, yeah, he wouldn't, he wouldn't just leave put them, them in that drawer. I know. So probably mum did know, but I tried to kind of over the years I sort of hinted, you know, so oh, I asked questions about how, the teacher. How do you, how do you suddenly well, go? No, I would say so, uh... I, no, because because we knew her. I would say so. Um, do you still see? So and so, and um, you know, I, I always got the impression that she really fancied dad, and just to see if there's a flicker of anything on mum's face, and there never was. Mm. So I suppose it's possible that she just said, "Could you take some arty pictures of me and dad?" Went, oh, all right then, having never taken any like doing done any life photography before or since, to my knowledge, mm. it's quite interesting, isn't it? But I thought, you know, that could really, and it's it's always sort of nagged at me a bit, but um, it sounds, I mean, it's, well. Not that incident doesn't sound great, but the book sounds great. Oh, well, you, I mean, you should read it. I should have bought you a coffee. A you coffee, should have bought me a copy. Yeah. That's right. I'll, I'll, buy, it. I'll buy it. Oh, we get it How on Kindle. How much is it? It's not, it's not more than three pounds, <laughs> is it? Because I'm not spending more than three pounds. <laughs> it probably isn't. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's one ninety nine. It'd be interesting to see what you think of it. Um, well, I've, I've read a number of your novels. I've read your first two, three, yeah. I think, which I loved. Oh, thank you. Um, and, then I, and then I narrated The Last Stage... Oh, yes, you narrated the one that was three books ago. Yes, I like that one, actually. I like that uh, one. Yeah, but again, that's another one that just sort of came and went. You know, it's just so difficult for a book to stand out Mm. these days, unless it's got, as I said, unless it's got a massive marketing budget or you're an absolute whiz at self-promotion, which I really am not. I hate it. And I, I sort of really resent having to do it. I don't want to... I don't mind doing this kind of thing. It's enjoyable. And I don't mind doing um, anything, really, uh, you know, talks and stuff. I did at first. I remember when To Be Someone came out, I had to go and have media training because I was the thought of going on TV or the radio absolutely made me want to pass out with fright. And really? Yeah, and... and TV didn't come up as an option the first time round, but it did when Mark and I self-published, and we actually were on we were on four or five different breakfast shows. And so, tell me what happened with with you and Mark. Yeah, that because was you became amazing. a sort of publishing phenomenon. Yes, yeah, and it's so lovely for him, you know, that it kind of the the backstory is quite a long story. Are you ready? <laughs> so, um, are you okay. sitting I'll just get, I'll just get my pillows. <laughs> I'll put my slippers on. We're right. Yeah, go on. Um, I'd written two books I think and I'd got an agent um, but it, she wasn't a very good agent and that's another piece of advice I always give writers don't just get any agent because it's really hard to get an agent so any agent that takes you on you think woohoo I've got an agent but uh, you know a bad agent is about as much use as a chocolate teapot you might yeah, as well so not it's bother it's the same with acting to be honest is it yeah, yeah, yeah. yes I can imagine yeah. you need somebody that absolutely champions you and your work but and it's very as you say it's very hard it's so hard to get a, a, a top agent because yeah. they've got for obvious reasons yeah. I know and you've got to be really exceptional but there's just no point in having a, a mediocre agent and I didn't realise that and I was just delighted to have an agent because I'd been trying to get an agent for a couple of years anyway so 1999 I had this agent I think she'd sent out my first book and got lots of nice rejections and then she sent out the second one and the same thing happened so I was just getting lots of rejections and there were BBC did a a program a documentary called I think it was called Close Up and there was one about um, trying to be published and there was three authors there were three authors there was Jake Arnott who went on and had quite a successful career as a crime writer 
And he just got his first publishing advance for 50 grand. And, you know, it was quite a big deal. Mm. Um, and then there was Mark Tyler Edwards, as he was called then. And he was in exactly the same situation as me. He'd written two books. He had this agent who they interviewed as well. And I thought, gosh, she looks a bit like my agent, sort of, you know, quite not massively enthusiastic about his work, but mm. sort of, oh, well, we're sending it out and seeing what happens. And he was getting lots of rejections. And then there was a third girl who um, had written a, a book and was trying to get an agent. So she was just sending out her manuscript to agents. And they all read extracts from their books. And I thought Marx was really good. And it might have even been Magpies that he read out. I can't remember. But um, I did sort of very uncharacteristically, not known for doing it before or since, but I emailed him via his agent because they said his agent's name. And I said, could you pass this on to Mark? And I just said, really hope you get published soon. It was really interesting. I'm in exactly the same position. Um, Thought your stuff was great. Good luck or something. And he wrote back. And so we started a correspondence. I think he was living down in Tunbridge or somewhere at that time. We did eventually meet up about after about a year of, of emailing and we had similar music tastes and it was like having a pen pal. It was great. And then we started critiquing each other's work. And so when we finally did meet up, we thought, actually, we could write something together. Because I think that around that time, there was, there's two authors called Emlyn Reese and Josie Lloyd who had co-written a book Right. Um, from a male and female perspective. And we thought, well, if we did a kind of more crime version of that, mm. that idea, and it was great because we were used to each other's work by then and we, we were used to editing each other's work. So he moved to Japan and we wrote this whole book, Killing Cupid, by email and a chapter, just alternated chapters. We didn't, I don't re think we knew where it was going at all. We just, it was about um, a creative writing teacher and her pupil who who becomes really obsessive about her and um, and then halfway through, there's a switch, and the the tutor starts stalking the the guy who who right. the guy finds a girlfriend and kind of loses interest in the creative writing tutor, and she's sort of outraged that she can't even keep a stalker. So she starts talking him allegedly a, a bit at the beginning to go after him for some money that she he used her credit card to buy to buy her loads of sort of nice underwear because he couldn't afford to buy her nice things. <laughs> it's kind of a crime comedy. Um, and we sent that out to publishers when it was finished and they all said, yeah, no, it's it's too much of a comedy to be a thriller and it's too much of a thriller to be comedy. So mm. they, we didn't know what, they didn't know what to do with it. So we got nowhere with that. Although the BBC optioned it for a drama, which was never actually made, but that was quite exciting. Wow. And then we decided we'd write more of a, just cut the comedy, just a thriller. So we wrote Catch Your Death, which was all um, set around, there used to be a cold research centre near Salisbury that I knew about. They were trying to find a cure for the common cold. Oh, I see. So um, they, would, they would infect you deliberately? Yes, yes. Or not? Or not. And, and then they would monitor your symptoms and blah, blah. And it, this was a real thing in a way. It went on from the second world war until the 80s and i and you right. they would pay you to go and have a nice two-week holiday in this sort of countryside you can go for walks but you couldn't really mix with anyone <laughs> That's else strange i know it's so strange so okay. i always wanted to write a book set there but my idea of it was that it would be a romance about two people that meet there and um you know under those circumstances but mark was like no we'll make it a thriller we'll put have deadly viruses it could be a cover for you know this these evil scientists trying to you know <laughs> create viruses that will wipe out the world's population i'm like oh yeah, I haven't thought of it like that. Could, <laughs> okay. Can there still be a romance? Yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> so that's what we did. And and it's a slightly bonkers thriller, 
but it works as a thriller and it's quite sort of pacey and it was all that we tried to make it all the things that we'd had criticism for Killing Cupid about and we sent that out and that didn't get anywhere either. We did still alternate chapters but we would edit each other's chapters to to try and unify the voice. Right. Um, With that one I can still sort of tell which one which chapters I wrote and which ones Mark wrote but as we went on through the books by the end I genuinely there's with a few exceptions if there's a big scene that I wrote that I remember writing but a lot of times I'll pick up one of those books look through it and think I have no idea if I wrote that or if Mark did it's right. funny right. but didn't you you became a publishing phenom- yes, phenomenon on Amazon yes because nobody wanted to publish either of those books traditionally so we stuck them in a drawer and forgot about them for a couple of years so this was all around um, probably early part of 2000 so 2005 to 2009 I'd say we, we sort of stopped trying and then in 2010 um, Mark got in touch with me I think I hadn't heard from him for a while and he said there's this new thing that's come over that people are doing in America through Amazon you can publish your own book um, online we should do that uh, and I was like oh, no nobody will buy it but he he's such I mean he absolutely deserves all his success Mark because he's a, a genius marketing mind um, and he'd worked in marketing as well and he worked out this kind of what we needed to do and we looked at the case cases of other people who'd been successful doing it in America and the key thing we decided we needed to make the books cheap because Kindle publishing was really new over here and nobody the the, the main publishers hadn't figured out how to do it right so they were charging 7 8 pounds for an ebook and people were going well why would i pay that when i could buy the paperback for the same amount mm-hmm. so we kind of swooped in as one of the very first um, people to self-publish, and we charged, I think, one pound twenty or ninety-nine p or something, and um, we just sold bucket loads because it was. I, I mean, it wasn't just the price. Obviously, we we did a lot of marketing for it. We wrote blog posts for other people who had book blogs, and they reciprocated. And we um, we put out Killing Cupid first in the January of twenty eleven. I think it was. And it sold two copies the first week, four copies the next, and we started selling it to our family and friends. And it kind of just ticked along and the sales gradually came up. And we had an ad for Catch a Death at the end of it, the first chapter of Catch a Death. And then we released that, I think, in April that year. Uh, And it just flew up the charts. It was Mm. bizarre. I think partly because we'd used Killing Cupid as a a way to spread the word about it. Mm. And that was slowly rising. And then we put out Catch a Death of, and it just sort of caught a wave, basically, and went, I think, in about a month, it went to number one on Amazon and Killing Cupid. We had about three weeks when Catch a Death was number one and Killing Cupid was number two. And it was just crazy. It was amazing. Wow. It was such an exciting time. Um and, you know, we were interviewed on breakfast TV, like I said, and all these people were phoning us up. And you're thinking, ah, you know, the evening standard. It's like, how are these people getting on my number and ringing me up and people mm. saying, can you do an interview? And so I'm glad that didn't happen 10 years before because I would have been really freaked out. But 10 years afterwards, I was a bit more, I could cope with it a bit better. And also it was great doing it with Mark because, you know, we were in it together. Mm. And, mm. Um, and then off the back of that, um, having the irony of spending years to try and get an agent for these two books 
uh, we had agents coming to us saying, can we represent you? Which, of course, is what happens, isn't it? Yes, yes. Success breeds more success. If there's a bandwagon, people will will, uh, jump on it. Yeah. Yeah, so it's fantastic. So we got this great agent, Sam, Sam Copeland, and then um, he immediately took the books to uh, out to publishers and HarperCollins snapped us up for six figures. Um, and that's kind of where the, the good part stopped for, for us in a way, because what we didn't realise is that HarperCollins, um, when they, they reissued Catch Your Death and Killing Cupid and then gave us a contract for two more as well, new ones. But we we thought that because they'd signed us, they would take over all the marketing and publicity. But then it became clear that actually they expected us to do what we'd done before mm. when we self-published mm. with the published books. And it wasn't the same. Um, and we kind of felt that we'd sold... Because we'd already sold probably 150,000 copies of, of them. And they'd sort of... They'd been out once. And it's mm. really difficult to then engender that same sort of buzz about a book yes. that's already been out and been, you know, number one when it's reissued a year later and then we we were we had some bad luck with them in that i think one of i can't remember which one it was but one was supposed to go into supermarkets and there was a cock up from the distributors and the books never arrived or you know it it didn't it didn't happen and basically they sold way less than we had of of those books mm. and then which sort of made them disinclined to then really promote the the third and fourth So in ones. a way, what you're saying, I mean, well, not the only thing you're saying, but, but what, one of the things that comes across to me from what you're saying is that, you know, if you were a really good market marketeer or marketer or whatever, I don't know what the word is, good at marketing, um, it's almost more important than it, than what you write. Yeah. I think at this stage in the, the publishing industry, it, it is definitely as important because, you know, I, I work, I now edit lots of people's manuscripts and I love doing that. And it's more satisfying and kind of more lucrative at the moment than publishing. And how do you get that work? Through your um, publisher? No, no, no. Through I, I am signed up with Simon & Schuster, but I hardly get any work from them because they've got a big pool of and it's sort of first come, first served. and. But no, mostly word of mouth or through writer friends, you know, people approach them saying, do you know any editors and they know that I do it or, and I'm also a a coach, an editor for Jackie Lofthouse's um, The Writing Coach website. And I was in with Susie uh, Holiday on Crime Fiction Coach, which doesn't do so much editing these days, but yeah, so different, different places. Okay. So editor is is a term you hear bandied around a lot. Uh, you know, along with publisher. So, what does an what do you do when you edit a manuscript? Well, you can do different. You can have different functions as an editor. You either you could do a structural edit, which means basically reading the whole thing and working out if it's not working, figuring out why it's not working, okay. making suggestions, finding the strengths and the weak spots, and helping them work on the weak spot. Like maybe characters aren't strong enough or maybe the plot doesn't work or you know just basically having an overview of the whole thing and mm. Mm. making it work or it could just be a copy edit or a proofread or um you know just editing to right. tighten it up right. so it's sort of one or the other really and i've got a couple of clients as well that sort of i'm working with over six months uh, as they're you know basically hand holding as they're going along and reading their work as they um submit it um but what i was going to say about editing because i read lots of other people's manuscripts and I've got lots of friends who are writers I know some incredible writers that have never been published 
really? ever. They've just had rejection after rejection and through absolutely no fault of their own. I mean, they're amazing and that they should, by rights, have won... I know people that should have won the Booker Prize and that haven't even been able to get an agent. It's so hard, but then... But then I, I also know people who've written very average books who've made a fortune. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there's a huge amount of luck involved in it. Mm. And I guess, to, to be honest, I, it's the same in any kind of creative industry, yeah. isn't it? It's the same in the music business, yeah. which you worked yeah. in for a, a long time. And, you know, as an actor as well, I know a lot of yeah. actors who are, you know, very good, who sort of should have had better careers, yeah. and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's just so much luck involved. Yeah. And... and to go go back to the original question about you know why am I my love hate relationship with it, it's fine if you've got it's, at some point you just don't have the stomach for it anymore. No, I will write another book if I have an amazing idea and it's a book that I really am invested in emotionally, but I just don't want to churn out more content for publishers to make a fortune out of and me to make no money at all. No, I know I am quite cynical about it, but it's you know I've had some really good years and. I've been yeah, very lucky, sure. yeah. and the fact that I've been able to do it for 20 years, mostly. I mean, I did have a break of a few years in the middle, but, yeah, I'm aware how, how fortunate I have been when there's been other people who are much better writers than me that have never never had a book published or have had one book published that sort of did nothing and then ups and downs. But so you have decided that that's it? I have decided that's it in terms of just writing for the sake of being... to be able to stay being a writer... Okay. I'm not saying I'll never write another novel. I've got no plans to at the moment, and I kind of, I really, I've got no desire to at the moment either. But before, I thought I was never going to write another one. And then when Mark and I had our success with Catch a Death and Killing Cupid, then that sort of reignited my enthusiasm right. for it. And would you think about writing with somebody else? I'd love to write with somebody else. I really like co-writing, but I think Mark, I was very lucky with Mark because we just, I, d I, I know that it's hard to find the right person to write with. And if you do, it's brilliant because it's like half the effort and you've got somebody to brainstorm with all mm. the time. Mm. Of course, the downside is it's only half the rewards. Okay. And I think, you know, Mark eventually, after we we uh, we didn't have as much success as HarperCollins hoped and they dropped us, he then self-published Magpies, got to number one and HarperCollins were coming to him saying, could you could you tell us how you did that? <laughs> um, wow. I know. So he then got, you know, his career has just gone from strength to strength since then. And, you know, I totally understand that why would you want to only make 50% of what you could make yes. when you're on your own? But yes, I would I would definitely co-write again. It's really, I really en enjoy it as a process. And it, I find it much easier because plotting is the thing that I've always found hard in my books, even though weirdly they always end up to be quite tightly plotted but it's so I find it so difficult and it's so much easier if you've got someone you can just brainstorm with mm. so it's not just about them doing half the work it's more about the process is much easier but it's got to be the right person you know I'm sure that there's loads of people that I find a nightmare writing with <laughs> <laughs> honey thank you oh, and and again seriously I mean you know because of you I now have this uh this sort of other career yay if you could laughingly call it a career, well, but I have this other it job. It is a career. Anyway. I'm looking at all these books on, on the shelf that you've narrated, and that's a lot of talking. <laughs> that's a lot of talking out loud. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, because, like, yes, I've done over 100 books now. Wow. Um, In, on, what, on six Audible. years? Yeah, something like that. Well, 2015 was, 15, seven, was I think, wasn't it? Was six, that was seven um, years. Yeah, that was... Uh, the Blissfully Dead, I did that in 2000, or that came out in 2015. Yes, oh, that, so that's get, about yeah. right. That was the last book that has made any money for me. <laughs> that was really? Deep. Yes. Oh. 
Yeah. The blissfully solvent. The blissfully solvent. Yeah. Hey ho. Hey ho. Listen, keep editing. <laughs> keep singing. Keep talking. Keep singing. Because you sing in a band, don't you? I've, we used I've, to sing. We used, we used to sing in a band. We together, did. We? we did. It was really fun. And it I think fun. actually I should thank you similarly that I think if I hadn't done that stuff with you and Pete I probably wouldn't have the confidence to have gone on and done it elsewhere because when I moved down to Salisbury I thought I really want to find a band to be in because it just it was just the nerves the stage fright of it really and and the because you are really putting yourself out there and I don't think I'm not the best singer in the world by any means but I do love you know, I can hold a tune and I can sing in harmonies. And ha- I love, yes, so you're terrific I at harmonies. I love singing terrific. harmonies. I cannot do it. I just gravitate to the tune every really? time. Really? Yeah, yeah. Don't know why I can't do it. Oh, it's funny. Uh, yeah, I just assumed that everybody could do it. No, but no. it is. I think most people, I would say most people can't. Oh, wow. Not to the degree that you can cool. do it. <laughs> you're like really good, Louise. Oh, my God. You're really I wish clever. I had a better voice. I mean, I, I wish I had a sort of big diva voice, but I don't. But that's fine. But I just, it's so enjoyable. And so I'm in a function band called Horizon, which is great and I've got my little um, ukulele vocal harmony quartet which is called Cool Hand Uke which is also really <laughs> That's cool. That's a very good name. And uh, I've just joined another band called the Mark's Mormon Band so I'm going to be really busy with all that stuff and good. no time to write. Good. Well, yes. well keep singing. Thank you. Um, hi, I wonder... Sorry. Sorry. Um... Hi, I wonder if you can help me. Um, I'm here to get my money. Sorry? My money. I'm here to collect my money from the library. I beg your pardon? Well, I, I'm, an, I'm an audiobook narrator. Um, Simon. Simon Mattox, you might have heard of me. No, love. Can't say I have. N- no. Um, sure. Well, um, basically, I, I was told by someone that every time one of my audiobooks is taken out, I get a percentage of the... Um, of the fee. Sorry, love. What fee? Well, the fee for taking out the audiobook. There is no fee, love. We're a lending library. Have you not heard the term? People come and borrow books or audiobooks for free. I, I see. Yes. Yes, that, that, that makes sense then. Um, so there is no money? Well, I can have a look, love. What did you say your name was? Uh, Simon. Uh, Matax. M A T T A C K S. It's like Simon M attacks. <laughs> Not that I would um, attack you <laughs> or, or anyone, um, actually. We don't keep a record of everyone who takes out a book or an audio book. I'll have a look for you. Yeah, Matix, 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 Matix. Yeah. Oh, oh, here we are, love. Simon Matax. Oh yes, someone did take out one of your audio books and it were a paid for one. So um, let me just go and see what we've got for you. Hold on. Sorry to keep you waiting. Here we are, love. Oh, um, gosh, wasn't, uh, wasn't quite what I was expecting. Well, to be honest, you don't seem to be one of the popular narrators, I'm afraid. Right. No, uh, okay, um, sure. Why don't you keep the jar, though? Um, great. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to hear more in the series, please visit our website, www.com. 
talkingbooks.org.uk.